uh, it's really interesting. Um, as Larry and I talk about this whole transition, many of you know that um, Larry's transitioning out of being the senior pastor here at Golden Hills. I'm transitioning in. And uh, he told me one of the weird things about it is when you've been here long enough, you start to see people who were, in, who were really young and who you used to dedicate now having their kids being dedicated. And um, so I was like, I don't know what that feels like. I'm not that old yet. But, um, <laughs> but what was really interesting is Allison and Will. I've known Allison before she was uh, married, before she was engaged, all that kind of stuff. And so to see her um, was just kind of like shocking. Like, oh, man, I remember you when you just got out of uh, college. Because many of you know that I used to be the young adult pastor here at Golden Hills. And so I used to work with college students and young adults. And uh, one of the things I noticed about that, in, in like in the case with Allison, is um, whenever they got engaged, I didn't ever have to like coax that information out of them. They readily shared it. And uh, also um, when, you know, they ended up finding out they're pregnant or what gender their baby is, you usually don't have to like beg people or coax them to give that information. They share it readily. Uh, if you notice on social media is usually the biggest platform, like, yeah, guess what? And whatever. And, and I was thinking about that, and I said, you know, the most joyous news, you tend to not need to beg people to share that. You don't need to coax them. Like, no one needs to beg um, anyone about the great news of uh, that you're going to get married or that you're going to have a baby. And I find that very interesting because I think that's just true. The more that you find joy in a particular thing or particular topic, the more readily and more easily you share that news. And I think that's true with the gospel. I think in a lot of ways, if we would see the gospel as truly good news, joyful news, glad news, and we actually saw it as something remarkable and we treasured it and we delighted in it, it would be so easily shared by us. Because you wouldn't need to be coaxed. You wouldn't need to be told. They would just come out. And so that's what I'm hoping to show us this morning from Acts chapter 13, is that the joy that we have in the gospel, it does in fact multiply. The joy is multiplied when we hear the word of the Lord and we believe it. As we hear the gospel and we believe the gospel, it's one of those things like I can't exactly explain it to you, but I can dare you to try it. When you hear the gospel and believe it, you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy that nothing in this world can hinder or take away. So let's read this, Acts chapter 13, verse 42. I'll fill in the blanks just in case there's some questions you may have. As they, being Paul and Barnabas, and just to remind you, I'm reading now the ESV. As they went out, Paul and Barnabas, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold... We're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. 
And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews, they incited the devout women of high standing and leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So, Father, would you do that for us? Would you fill us with joy, fill us with your Holy Spirit? Because we know from 1 Corinthians 3 that the presence of the Holy Spirit is the way in which we come to know the deep things of God. And so we ask and we beg of you to pour out the Spirit in this place that we may, not, that we may know you, that we can hear from this word a message from you. And through that proclamation and through that message and through reading this and through thinking about it, God, you would grant us the joy. So, God, teach us now, we pray. We're eager. Speak. We're listening. For your glory, for our joy, in Jesus' name, amen. We look in verse 42. You can see something interesting happening here. As Paul and Barnabas went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. So to give you a little bit of a backdrop of what exactly is happening here, Paul and Barnabas, they show up to Antioch and Pisidia, and they walk into the synagogue, and the synagogue leaders see Paul and Barnabas, they, and they say hello, they read from the prophets, and they read from the Psalms, and they read from Moses, and then they ask, hey, brothers, do you have any word of encouragement? You can see this at the beginning of Acts 13. So Paul, never being one to just pass up on an opportunity, stands up, and he begins to preach. And as he begins to preach, he begins to lay out for the people who are gathered in that synagogue the gospel. And so the people are just enthralled. The people are just mesmerized by this message, so much so that in verse 42, they begin to beg that these things, and these things refer to the things that Paul was preaching. They beg that these things, these topics, these truths be spoken to them again the next week. So the question is, what are these things exactly? What are these things that Paul spoke about? And in case you weren't here last week and you didn't hear Larry preach on this, it's good for me to remind you. You all haven't forgotten though, right? Right. What is it? Verse 26 of chapter 13. What Paul was preaching was the message of salvation. Now, what is the message of salvation? We actually find it unpacked for us in verse 28 of chapter 13. Paul says, and they found him, in him, being Jesus, no guilt worth, worthy of death. They asked, and they being the Jews, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people." And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus from the dead. So what were the things that the, the people were begging Paul and Barnabas to come back and teach them again? It was the gospel. It was the message of good news, the message of salvation. And the content of the gospel is contained in these verses the content is the fact that Jesus was innocent. He was sinless. But he was nonetheless executed under the watchful eye of Pontius Pilate. That he, being dead on a cross, was taken down from the cross and his lifeless body was placed into a tomb. But in that tomb, three days later, he sprung back to life. 
He was not resuscitated. He was resurrected. And through that resurrection, many witnesses who saw him risen from the dead became witnesses of that resurrection, and they began to proclaim that Jesus is not dead. Jesus is risen from the dead. These historical facts are what we could call the content of the gospel. And these are the things that the people wanted to hear again. Amazing. Hey, when you hear that somebody rose from the dead, you might want to go, wait, what? Say that again? Huh. And if you notice the rest of Paul's sermon, which Larry preached on last week, it revolves or centers on the resurrection. And in fact, if you were to read through the book of Acts, you would find that every single sermon preached in the book of Acts centers or main theme is the resurrection, which tells us that if any message or any sermon is truly Christian, it must include the resurrection. Because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus is not risen from the dead, sins are not forgiven, you are not justified, and you have no hope. So if you are hearing a sermon or somebody preaching and they claim to be a Christian, but they don't mention the resurrection, that sermon, as good as it was, wasn't Christian because it excluded the resurrection, which by definition is the center of Christianity. So no wonder why Paul spent so much time talking about the resurrection. Because it is through the resurrection we receive forgiveness of sins. It is through the resurrection that we have justification. It is through the resurrection that we have hope. It is through the resurrection of Jesus that all things are being made new again. But this isn't something new. This is something God promised for a very long time now. Because the second thing that is involved in Paul's preaching is the context of the gospel which means why is the good news news and why, what, what is it that makes it good? And, and it did, did it just spring out of nowhere? No, in fact, as Paul says, it was a fulfillment. He says it multiple times in his sermon. This is to fulfill, this is to fulfill, this is to fulfill, which means way back when God had been telling the people that something marvelous and miraculous is going to happen. In fact, we see this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. After the fall of Adam and Eve, when sin is introduced into the world, into humanity, God begins to curse Satan. And he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The promise is this. There is always going to be animosity between those who are God's people, the offspring of the woman, and those who are not God's people, the offspring of Satan, they're always going to be at odds with one another. But we see that the offspring of the woman will one day crush the head. And we see in Romans chapter 15 that the identity of the serpent crusher, his name is Jesus. He is the one who overcomes sin. He is the one who overcomes evil. He is the one who conquers Satan. But we see also a promise in Genesis 22, verse 18, to Abraham, that in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. All the nations through the offspring of Abraham will be blessed. We see also a promise from the lips of Moses, Deuteronomy 18, 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And then we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7, another promise made to David. When your days are fulfilled 
and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you and you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. You see what's happening. God, from the very beginning, when he created everything good and then it was plunged into decay and chaos because of sin, God made a promise, a a just shining light in the midst of darkness that one day there will come an offspring of the woman who Paul identifies in Galatians 4 as Jesus, who will be an offspring of Abraham. And as you read early in the early chapters of Matthew and Luke, that Mary and Zechariah, that they identify this baby Jesus as being the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham. And then we see that through the lips of Moses, a promise of a prophet who would deliver his people. That as the people begin to think about all that Jesus had done in his deliverance, the forgiveness of sins, that they begin to think like, man, that, that was just like Moses, just better. And then through the promise to David, there would be a king who would rule. And we come to find out that that offspring of David who would rule forever, his name is Jesus. Born in Bethlehem, raised in a place called Nazareth in a region called Galilee, a carpenter's son. Born on the other side of the tracks. Unwanted, not glorious, but nonetheless God in the flesh. His name is also called the Christ Or in other words, the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one, the Savior, the Redeemer. And so that is the context of the gospel. This isn't something brand new out of of thin air. This is something God has been working throughout history to accomplish. And now all of those promises are fulfilled in this person named Jesus. It's remarkable. So not only is the content of the gospel the sinless life of Jesus, crucified for our sins, resurrected in glory, not only is it the context, promise fulfilled, but there's also a consequence of the gospel. And we see this in verse 38 and 39 of chapter 13. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, Paul preaches, that through this man Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And so you see the consequence of the gospel. There's two things. You can have forgiveness of sins and you can be freed from the law of Moses. And how you're forgiven of sins is simply this. As it says here, by by believing in Jesus. The word belief, you can also say trust. And so if we will no longer trust ourselves to be good enough, to be skilled enough, but instead we will turn our faces, no longer trusting ourselves, but trusting that Jesus is enough, that in that turning of trust from us to Jesus, that we will receive forgiveness of sins. And if we will no longer trust ourselves to accomplish all that God expects for us, but we will trust that Jesus is enough for us and has accomplished everything for us, we will be freed from the law of Moses. Now, what is the law of Moses? The law of Moses is the moral code. It was introduced to bring condemnation and conviction. And the more you try to obey the law of Moses, as Galatians 3 talks about, the more you are convinced that you are guilty and you are condemned. And so when you find out you're condemned and you feel the sense of conviction, you are filled with guilt 
You recognize your sin, and the product of that is you are filled with shame. Now, you don't overcome that guilt. You don't overcome sin, nor do you overcome shame by trying harder. You overcome that by trusting Jesus that he's enough. He did it for you. And in that trust, you are liberated and you are set free, which means you are set free from sin, you are set free from guilt, you are set free from the bondage of shame. And I don't know very many people in the world who are not interested in being set free from guilt and set free from shame. Why do you think on social media that we always have to edit our pictures and edit our lives to make sure that everyone understands that our life is better than it actually is? Because we're scared they might find out we're not all that great. And guess what? All of us have already been outed. God knows we're not that great. That's why Jesus went to a cross. So no more guilt, no more shame, no more sin. Jesus takes it all. So Paul began to preach this. The content of the gospel, the context of the gospel, the consequences of the gospel, and that's what we can call the message of salvation. That's what we can call the message of the good news. And throughout this text, you're going to see some phrases, word of the Lord, word of God. And because those words are associated with whatever our answer is to the question, what are the things that people are interested in, then whenever we see word of the Lord or word of God, what Paul means and what Luke means is the gospel message, the content of the gospel, the context of the gospel, and the consequence of the gospel. And we can see they're begging them. Verse 43, after the meeting of the synagogue, after Paul gets done preaching these things, the message of the gospel, people are begging him, pulling on his, on his sleeves and tapping him on the shoulder. Can you come back next week? This is amazing. I can't believe this stuff. Come back next week. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, which is kind of like picture when, what we do outside in the courtyard area where everyone's mingling with their coffee and, and giggling and kids are running around and scraping their knees and everyone's just, it's great. And that's what's happening. Synagogue's broken up. Many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who, as they spoke with them, Paul and Barnabas urged them to continue in the grace of God. Or in other words, because of Paul's preaching, Many Jews and devout converts to Judaism believed the gospel. How do we know that? Well, Paul and Barnabas wouldn't urge them to continue in something they weren't already in. The fact is they were in the, in the grace of God, which means they believed the gospel. And so Paul and Barnabas say, continue in it. Continue in the grace of God. Because the gospel, the good news, is all about God's grace. It's a message for undeserving people that God has secured eternal redemption through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And all who trust in him are forgiven and set free in order to live for God, for his glory, and for their everlasting joy. That is good news, and that is all because of grace. And the people believed. And then look what happens. The next Sabbath, so they decide to give in to peer pressure, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Almost the whole city gathers. That's shocking. It means that God is working. Because remember from Romans 3 where Paul writes that nobody seeks God. Nobody. And just in case anyone is confused by the word nobody, it means literally nobody <laughs> seeks God. 
And, and we understand from John chapter 6 where Jesus says, nobody will come to me unless the Father draws them. So you have these two thoughts in your head where God, through Paul, says, nobody seeks me. And the only people who do seek me are the ones who I'm working on, drawing them to Jesus. And so now you have almost a whole city wanting to hear the gospel, which is evidence that God is working on the hearts of these people. There is no other way to look at it. There's no such thing as seekers. There's people who are being sought by God. And God is drawing them to himself. And so here they are gathering to hear the gospel. They're not gathering because Paul and Barnabas are fun guys, because they have T-shirt cannons that they're going to shoot to the congregation. <laughs> they're not there for the light show or the smoke machines. They're not there for the gimmicks. They're not there for semi-spiritual life hacks. They have come because they know that Paul and Barnabas are preaching to them the gospel, which are the words of life itself. And when dead people find out you can live, they probably want to hear that. And I want to be just, I want to encourage you. Every week you come to Golden Hills, you're going to hear the gospel. And the reason why we do that is because these are the only words we have that give life. And if I give you life hacks, you may be improved, but you don't have life. And I want dead people to come to life. So we preach the gospel as Paul and Barnabas preach the gospel. And yet what we see is every time God's at work in the hearts of people, there's also opposition. Remember, enmity between the offspring of the woman and offspring of Satan. Enmity. And so we see the enmity right here. God's work is always opposed. Look at this in verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. The word revile means to hate with words and to cut him down and to say just nasty things about him. So here's what's happening. A whole bunch of people gather at synagogue, and the leaders of the synagogue are going, wait a minute, we can't attract this many people on a normal Sabbath. What's with these guys? What is it about them that's drawing these huge crowds? And so they get all frustrated and bent out of shape, and so they start contradicting their messages and begin to revile them. Now, this is to be expected. Because as Jesus says in John chapter 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And he says, but when the helper comes who I send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And he says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. So what Jesus does is like, look, I don't want you guys to fall away. So I'm going to tell you ahead of time that life is going to be almost infinitely impossible. If you're going to follow me, it's going to be hard and difficult, and you're going to find opposition everywhere. But I'm telling you ahead of time so that when it comes, you won't quit. And I think that's a good encouragement to us. But Christianity is not a game. I think people take it like, like it's a social media friend request. Like, hey, you want to be my friend? Yes or no? Yes. Oh, yay. <laughs> it's not like that. Jesus is, is bidding us come and die that you may live. And it's costly. 
And so opposition is there. Jesus goes on to say, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. They will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. Verse 20 of chapter 16 of John. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. So what Jesus is trying to say is like, look, you guys, if you're going to follow me, the world hates you because it hates me. It's going to be incredibly difficult. But don't worry. The helper, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. He's going to be with you even to the end of the age, inspiring you, equipping you, comforting you, and, and just gifting you with all that is necessary to keep on keeping on. So don't quit. Stay on Stay on track, continue in the grace of God. And then we see verse 46. So Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, or the other word is fearlessly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Do you notice that in verse 46 where it says it was necessary that the gospel be spoken to you first? There's a chronological and redemptive ordering to how God fulfills his promises. You see, the people of God in the Old Testament who are the Jews through Abraham, led by Moses, they are given these promises. So it's logical that since they were the ones who got the promises, they're the ones who are going to be told first hey, by the way, all those promises I gave you, I fulfilled them. Okay, that makes sense. That's what Romans 1.16 says. You, many of you know this verse. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. You heard that before? Where Paul writes, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We usually stop right there. and We don't actually read the next clause, which is to the Jew first, also to the Greek. There's a chronological ordering. In fact, Peter preaches it in Acts chapter 3, verse 26. God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to you first, Jews, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. But not only is there a chronological ordering, there's also a, re a redemptive ordering. And what we mean is the, the, the message of the gospel, yes, it goes to the Jews first chronologically, sequentially, but it also goes to the Jews first redemptively. You remember what Acts 1.18 says, or 1.8 says? You will receive power. You will be witnesses to the realms of the Jews first in Jerusalem. And then fast forward to the realm of the Gentiles in the place of the ends of the earth. So redemptively, the Jews come first in Jerusalem, but it extends out to the whole nations. You remember what the angels told the shepherds when Jesus was born? I have good news of great joy that is for who? All the peoples. That today in the city of David, a Savior is born whose name is Jesus for all the peoples. No wonder why Paul quotes Isaiah 49 as an Old Testament promise. Verse 47, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. 
This is God's plan from day one. The whole earth, as promised to Abraham, will be blessed. All the nations will be blessed in Jesus. You know, sometimes when I speak on this kind of stuff, what ends up happening is people tend to, to look at Jews first and Gentiles second as, as kind of an ordering racially. But we have to be very careful. That's not what God is doing. It's not a racial thing, as though the Jews are superior in some way to everyone else. That's why they get it first. And the reason why I want to make sure we understand that is because in a lot of ways, there's a lot of stuff going on in our culture where we are looking at races as one being more superior than the other. And the reason I bring this up is because of all this nonsense that's happening over the weekend. In Charlottesville, Virginia, University of Virginia, there is a march by white supremacists who are advocating the fact that those who are part of the white race are superior to all other races. And they are claiming that America is white people land. Not only that, but many of them are dressed in their KKK outfits and they're holding up signs calling themselves Christians. And let me tell you, let me be point blank, I'll speak to the camera, put this online, you are not a Christian. And here's why. Because God has a kingdom that is comprised of all people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, and every people group. And when we put the name of Christ on something that is the exact opposite of what Christ stands for, are we forgetting Ephesians 2 where it says that through the blood of Jesus, the dividing wall of hostility has been abolished? Where in the grace of God, because of the blood of Jesus, that people from every tongue, tribe, and nation and people group on this world which should hate each other and oftentimes do hate each other, but in the church, because of the grace, because of the message of the gospel, we actually love each other and serve one another? That this depiction of God's grace, that's what Christianity is all about. God has come to heal and restore and redeem the world. And when I hear people, when they say the real supreme people group on the face of the earth are middle-aged white women and men, and then they claim to be Christians. I'm thinking to myself, you don't even know what you're talking about. Middle-aged white folks are Christians and the real Christians and everyone else is not. And they're to be hated and despised. Have you not forgotten that our king and our savior is a Middle Eastern man? <laughs> so how in the world can you claim to follow Jesus, a Middle Eastern Jewish man, and yet hate him at the same time. Brothers and sisters, something ain't right. And I tell you what isn't right, white supremacy ain't right. It's evil and wicked. And all other forms of racism is evil and wicked. And I said a couple weeks ago when I preached, is racism, is racial issues a gospel issue? Yes. It is a consequence of the gospel because the shed blood of Jesus has provided the peace and the healing that is necessary to reconcile all those who are at odds with one another. It is a gospel issue. And that's why I celebrate when I saw a picture of a whole bunch of Christians arm in arm praying in Charlottesville, Virginia. And it gave me hope. 
that the gospel will go out and the gospel will heal. So brothers and sisters, that's the message of the gospel. And it's something to rejoice in. That God is doing something miraculous through the Jews to the nations. Every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group. Look at the response in verse 48. And when the Gentiles, the non-Jews heard this, that the gospel message isn't only for the Jewish people, but it includes an invitation to all walks of life, they began to rejoice and they were glorifying the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord being the gospel. You see the proper response? When you spend your whole life and the heritage of your ancestors, you've been alienated and segregated, and now all of a sudden you hear this glorious news that although this world hates you and separates you, God is inviting you. And where you think you know you, you previously did not belong, now you hear these great words that you do belong. And God wants you. And he wants you for himself. Those words are going to be so delightful to hear. I'm wanted. Yes, you're wanted. I'm loved beyond your wildest dreams. Wow. No wonder why they rejoiced and they glorified in the gospel. I'm a part of this. God's offering me life. And look at this. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, they believed. Their praise and their glorification is directed towards God because of the gospel message. That they being sinners can have forgiveness of sins and freedom from sins by being reconciled to God in Christ through faith. If you notice this last clause in, in verse 48, it, it, and if you know anything about grammar, you know that this last clause is in what's called the passive mood, which means that the subject of the sentence, which is the Gentiles, they are not doing the acting. They are the ones being acted upon. And here's what is happening to the Gentiles. is how Luke puts it. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, they believed. And in the passive mood, what this means is these people believed as the consequence or result of their appointment to eternal life. So naturally, the question is, well, who is it that has enough power to appoint people to eternal life? And the answer is God. God is the only one with the power to appoint people to eternal life. And the consequence of that appointment is belief. As many as were appointed believed. You know, Larry preached last week that if you become a Christian, you have all your sins forgiven and you're put into a, uh, the book of life and there's no asterisk. Remember when he said that? You ever thought and asked yourself the question, how do you get your name in the book of life? Here's how. You get appointed. The word appointed means to be assigned a certain classification. So God classifies you in the book of life as a Christian. And the consequence is, because my name is in the book, I therefore believe in the gospel. And I know that gives people a lot of heartburn. But I'm not real, you know, bothered by it. You could take that up with Luke. And uh, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So you could take that up with the Holy Spirit. 
Holy Spirit's the third person of the Trinity. You can take that up with God. All I know is this is what God's revelation says by the Holy Spirit through the author Luke, that God is the active one behind all of our redemption. And it, the reason why we believe is because God appointed us to eternal life, and therefore we believe. Now, no wonder why these people were rejoicing and thinking who? God. They weren't thinking Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas, thank you for your message. Thank you for saving me through your message. They weren't thinking themselves, what a glorious decision I've made to receive eternal life. <laughs> Praise me. <laughs> Instead, they're praising and rejoicing in God because it is God who has appointed them to eternal life. It is God who's accomplished all that is necessary to secure redemption. It is God who is offering them life. It is God who has done everything from beginning, middle, and end to secure eternal redemption for all those who are sinners. God has done it. That's why we gather at church to worship God. Because he's the actor, the agent. He is the one who's doing the work. And so the people rejoice. And look what happens in their joy, because of their joy. Verse 49. And the word of the Lord, the message of the gospel, was spreading throughout the whole region. Because of their joy... Do you see how quickly the message spreads? When you have this kind of joy, you have this kind of gladness that the bondage and, and, and the chains of my sin and shame and guilt have now been broken and I'm set free. That the fear of death, which plagues me and haunts me every minute of my life, that I don't have to fear that because if my body gives way, guess what? I'm getting promoted. I get a new body. Upgrade. There's joy in that, whatever may come. And so that message spreads. The message of peace, the message of hope, the message of reconciliation, the message that God, through the resurrection of Jesus, is making all things new again. That's good. But you have to remember opposition. Whenever God's at work, there's opposition. There's going to be enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of Satan, between God's people and not God's people. Let's look at this in verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. The moment you begin to open your mouth for the gospel and you begin to open your mouth and talk about healing and reconciliation and hope for the world which is lost, you are inviting persecution. And I think this is kind of interesting because when Paul was told what his job description would be as a Christian in Acts chapter 9, he's told through a man named Ananias. So here's what God told Paul through Ananias about what his job description is. Hey, Paul, you will be a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show you how much you must suffer for the sake of my name. Yikes. But God is faithful. He promised him suffering. Paul got it. Verse 50. Persecution was stirred up. Just as God promised. Look how they respond, verse 51. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them. 
and went to Iconium. And we don't do this in our culture. And I think a lot of, lot of reason why is because we pave over everything. But um, Jesus actually said this in Mark chapter 6, verse 11. And if any place, and if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, then when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. I think that's interesting. Maybe we should bring this back out. I just kicking off your sandal and slapping your sandals together so there's dust clouds. <laughs> I'm moving on. The dust that I collected by talking to you, I'm shaking it out and I'm going to the next person. It's kind of the, the image that's there. It's a testimony, a protest. Okay, I'm done with you. I'm moving on. But then look at this in verse 52. This is not what we would expect. In the midst of opposition, in the midst of affliction, in the midst of suffering, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus promised the helper, the spirit of truth would come. He would be our comforter. He would be our guide. He would be the one to equip us, to strengthen us, to gift us for all that we need to do the work of the ministry of the gospel. And they were filled with that spirit. And accompanying the, the, the filling of that spirit is also the filling of joy. Why is it so joyful in the face of persecution and suffering? Why is it so joyful for Christians? I think this is the reason why. John 16, this is from the lips of Jesus. He tells them that he's about to die. And so he says, so you have sorrow now to his disciples. But I will see you again. Yeah, I'm about to die, but guess what? I ain't going to stay dead. I'm coming back. And when I come back and see you again, your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take that joy from you. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. How has Jesus overcome the world? Through his death and resurrection. And if Jesus doesn't stay dead and we're in Jesus, we aren't going to stay dead. Which tells me, let the swords fly. Let the bullets ring out. Let the lions be set free. Let them destroy our bodies. Because even though I die, yet I shall live. I know the promises of 1 Corinthians 15. Though this body perish and fade away, I'm getting an imperishable body that will never rot, never fade, and never spoil. And so in the face of that persecution, you go, what are you going to do to me? You can't touch a hair on my head unless the Father wills it. And even if you kill me, guess what? You do me a favor. <laughs> so no wonder why they had joy. And that's what Paul's trying to get in our minds in Romans chapter 6, where he writes this. For if we have been united with Christ in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. 
We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also, Christians, must consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God, together in Christ Jesus. You hear that? Because I'm in Christ, I identify with his death. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. Because I identify with his resurrection, I know that nothing can touch me. Or to put it in another way, the words of Jesus, John chapter 10, verse 28 and 29. And I'm going to change the pronouns to first person. Jesus says, I give you eternal life, and you will never perish. And no one will snatch you out of my hand. My Father who has given you to me, he is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch you out of the Father's hand. Do you realize that you are double-fisted by God? Jesus has you in one hand, the Father has you in the other hand, and he's daring anyone to try to rip you out of his clutches. And guess what? There's no power greater than Jesus, no power greater than God, and therefore there's nothing that can ever separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Do we understand this, brothers and sisters? Nothing. So when we hear the gospel preached, the content of it, the context of it, and the consequence of the gospel we understand that it is God who causes us to believe and he appoints us to eternal life. Through that whole process, we also know that in the midst of conflict and affliction and persecution, we will have an abundant, overflowing, inexpressible, glorious joy. We got to share that. So, Father, help us do that. Because there is a hurting world out there that is ailing, that is in deep conflict and turmoil that is seeking for solutions and they're seeking it in all the wrong places because they're thinking through politics that they're going to find all the healing and all the solution to resolve all the conflict. And God, yet we know standing here, we know there's something far better than that, that you have sent your son Jesus to reconcile the world to yourself, to redeem and to restore, to bring about a peace and a healing. And God, you've chosen that we would be ambassadors to that kingdom where everyone is welcome from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group. We are to be ambassadors for the kingship of Jesus in whom we have our hope. So, God, would you release us as a church to bring healing to the nations for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.